This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Osife. So this is the week that Rishi Sunak unveiled his spring statement and it could also be the week that Rishi Sunak's hopes of entering number 10 disappeared depending on who you speak to. One of Gordon Brown's jokes was that there are two types of Chancellor, those who fail and those who get out in time. Fraser, as Rishi Sunak comes under attack from all sides really, criticism on the left, criticism on the right in terms of that spring statement, how much trouble is he in? Well, I think we've reached the inflection point in the great sort of sine curve of Rishi Sunak's fortunes. I mean, he was getting such good press when he became Chancellor that it was never going to last. Here was the guy who was dropped into his first budget with just a few weeks to spare. He did it brilliantly, then dropped straight into a pandemic where he handled it well emotionally and politically, as well as financially. He introduced the furlough scheme, which was a huge success, a scheme which will probably define him for good or ill for the rest of his time as a politician. But of course, it's so easy, as he knew at the time, it's so easy to get adulation when you're dishing out money. It's a lot harder to try to keep popular when you're trying to take it back. Now, this was the um, the corner that we turned this week. I think for a long time, Rishi Sunak has been carrying out basically Boris Johnson's spendthrift orders. Boris would spend his way through every single problem. Now also take lockdown. Yes, exceptional circumstances, but Britain had one of the most expensive lockdowns in the world. So the amount of money that was spent switching the economy on and off for two years, and they'd never really asked themselves before they locked down, how much is this going to cost? So much cash was spent, and you know we'd have lots of graphs showing us if COVID rates have up and down, but no graphs showing us the damage to the public finances and how that would hurt in future, public sector pay, public services, etc. Only now are we beginning to see this. So now Rishi Sunak has gone from being the bearer of good news to the bearer of bad news. And I don't think he's ever going to stop with the bad news. Not really. The next few years will be ones of, let's face it, austerity. Um, Not a word I use. Austerity is normally a, a pejorative word used to attack governments that are trying to get back to fiscal sanity. But nonetheless, Rishi Sunak is going to uh, keep them government departments frozen and any cost pressures have got to be absorbed within those departments. So he's taking flack, but also I detect a change of tone in him. He used to be, you know, the smiley, dishy Rishi, the guy who'd serve out pizzas in that place over the road. What was it called? It wasn't pizzas, it was um, Wagamama's, it was noodles. Serving Wagamama's noodles, right, in a brilliantly arranged photograph, if I remember correctly. But now, he's a little bit narky. When he was on with Sophie Ridge and Sky last Sunday, she was pointing out to him how much tax he'd raised compared to other chancellors. And he sort of snapped back how many of them had a pandemic to deal with. Sure, a good point, but the way he made it was a little bit antagonistic. Also, I detected in his interview um, with uh, Michelle Hussein uh, on the Today programme in Radio 4, the traditional slot and post-budget, again, a certain sense of irritability. Uh, Just let me finish answering the question. So I think he is now regarding himself as the bearer of bad news to his party. I think that he's positioned himself mainly as the... um, as the bringer of a tough message, which is from now on, you Tories have basically been spending like drunken Keynesians for years. 
From now on, I don't want to hear a peep out of any of you asking for extra spending unless you're also prepared to advocate the extra tax. So I think he wants to reconnect in the Tory mind, the idea of higher spending with higher taxation. So if you like, he's going to be um, there giving the caustic reminders, the ones snapping back, saying if you want extra spending, you've got to pay the extra tax. Um, If you don't like the tax rises, then you shouldn't have been all voting for um, the Prime Minister's uh, asset protection scheme. I'm not going to call it health and social security because it's not about asset protection. So he is now moving from, I guess, um, good cop to sort of bad cop in a way. He's got some fiscal medicine for us all to swallow and he's not taking no for an answer. James, that doesn't sound like a very popular position for a Chancellor to be in. Ultimately, if Rishi is going to be the bearer of bad news in the coming years, does that mean his leadership hopes have taken a massive hit? I think if you want to understand how Rishi Sunak views the world, it's worth, it's worth going back and reading his Tory conference speech, when he basically says that the er conservative value, the conservative value above, which he places above all else, is fiscal responsibility and fiscal conservatism. And I think that is important because... Well, we should say how he defines this, by the way, because some would argue that he's wrong. He basically defines it, James. He's be, but fiscal responsibility, what he means is you can't, do, you can't borrow to finance tax cuts. Now, many a Tory, let's trust, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, and journalistically, Alistair Heath would, in Sunday Telegraph, would, would reject that. But importantly, this is where he is, vis-a-vis other Tories. So he regards himself as a Thatcher, Lawson-style... Yeah. And if you go back answer. and, and if we, if not not to give poor listeners a, a long Rishi Sunak reading list, but um, if you go back and look at his May's lecture again, he makes the argument that, you know that you know tax cuts. He basically takes the Nigel Lawson view that tax cuts are only sustainable and credible if you've got public spending under control before you cut taxes. That's why there's this this lag until 2024 before this income tax cut comes in. And I think one of the things that is worth remembering is that I think politicians are generally quite happy when they're doing something that they believe in their bones, right? And if you can see this caution, right, which is, you know, he had more headroom in this spring statement than he chose to use. And I think lots of people say, oh, he's not choosing to use it because he wants to kind of build up his war chest. I think it is more that he sees all the risks, right, that, you know, the, the OBR forecasts were conducted before, it was quite clear uh, what the economic impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine well, would so be. So he thinks the headroom's going to vanish next time he stands up? Look, the OBR have just downgraded the growth forecast for this year to 3.8%. Mm. Now, from, from six, it was quite yeah, a big yeah, uh, yeah, I think it was more than six. It was six, six point something or other. But, I mean, if you think back, Katie, to the pandemic, if you'd been told that the first year without lockdown... You would have, you know, what, how big? How big do we think the UK economy would have grown by? We would have been going for really quite punchy numbers: eight, nine, maybe a ten, given how long the lockdown had gone on for. The fact that the growth rate for this year is only three point eight percent, I think, is properly alarming. And I also think this very important fact that you know, since the financial crash, UK productivity has only grown at an average of zero point four percent a year. You know, in the thirty years before the crash, it was growing at an average of two point two percent a year. So you know, I would be pleasantly surprised if the OBR predictions about how much headroom there is turned out to be correct. Fraser, it's been interesting uh, looking at some of the front pages in light of the spring statement. 
lots of papers very critical, such as the Telegraph, uh, for whom you write your column. But speaking to MPs, I don't get quite the same level of anxiety in the sense that when Rishi Sunak addressed the 22 committee on Wednesday evening, so before those front pages dropped, to be fair, there was some praise from the Tory right, uh, light praise, effectively saying, maybe we do believe you want to cut taxes. We might take you a bit more seriously on this. I think one MP said it was a creative and conservative economic plan. You did have, uh, for example, um, John Radford raise um, cost of living and saying more tax cuts were needed. But I think those around Rishi Sunak are pretty happy with the reception it got. And even speaking to MPs yesterday, I mean, lots of them said, well, he's got a really bad hand. There's not that much he can do. So do you think perhaps there's a difference between media interpretation and this and what the parliamentary party feels? Yeah, and there's also another third factor of public opinion. The polls show a more favourable response than the press gave it. But let's go through these three in turn. I think with the politicians, we know that Rishi Sunak has had the chance to have quite a lot of one-to-ones with the Tory MPs, uh, basically saying to them, look, I know I'm going to, I'm putting up taxes, I know my tax burden is going to be the highest for 78 years. However, I want you to know that uh, my mission as a chancellor is to reduce these taxes. Now, these are the reasons that my hands were tied. I had to pay this massive bill for the pandemic. We had to go along with all the spending the prime minister wants. But from now on, I'm going to put taxes down. So he was able to individually explain to them what he is about. Now, he would have been able to speak more freely than he would have been able to in his budget speech. So you will have had the MPs, they've been privy to being given pretty much one-to-one briefings on the Rishi Sunak way of seeing the world. He will not have done that to the press. And the press, when they look at this, they see um, Rishi standing up saying, I believe in in low taxes, while he's jacking up taxes. Now, the press are very quick to call hypocrisy, and quite right too, because we're used to politicians standing up asking us to believe one thing and doing another. I mean, opposition politicians are judged on what they say. Government, you're judged on what you do. And what he is doing in this budget is putting up taxes. So you're not going to say to your readers, behold, Rishi Sunak, the tax cutter, if in a few weeks' time your readers are going to be paying a lot more tax. An extra 2.5% is going to come off our salaries in about two weeks' time because of a tax which Rishi Sunak's treasury is pushing through. So you are not going to go along with the government spin as you would see it if your readers are going to feel it in their pocket. Now, the public... I think, we'll, we'll only ever sort of see these things through the peripheral vision. If you're a normal person, you don't really pay too much attention to uh, Rishi Sunak's um, May's lecture or whatever. You would um, probably work out, OK, the government had a pandemic to deal with, it's got a lot of bills it needs to repay, and this is going to be difficult for a while. So you'd probably be prepared to cut Rishi Sunak a bit more slack. You wouldn't really take his tax-cutting credentials seriously because you wouldn't be listening to them very much in the first place. If you look at the um, opinion polls now, people have basically given up on the idea of Tories cutting taxes. And understandably so, because there's a long line of Tories who say, who basically, who would do anything for tax cuts apart from implement them. We've had that time and time again. And now it's, this is a problem for the Tories at the next election. If your average voter is asked which party is more likely to, to cut taxes, you know, there, there'll be much of a muchness between the two. And given the recent experience, who can blame them? James, let's play over a scenario here. Um, the cost of living crisis clearly gets much worse. Anger towards Rishi Sunak builds. There's a reshuffle. Boris Johnson moves his chancellor. Do you think a new chancellor would adopt a different approach? One, perhaps, as Fraser was talking about, uh, which could please Tory MPs. Do you think borrowing to effectively 
have tax cuts would be popular. Or could we put a name in it? What about Jacob Rees-Mogg as Chancellor? Quasi, Quartin. So, okay, so I think this is actually a, a, an interesting question. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg is... is, is... Sounds surprised I asked an interesting question, but... <laughs> always interesting. Let the record state. <laughs> Come on, James. No, so I think, I think this is a good point, right? Because if you think back to that September cabinet, when three people opposed the national insurance tax rise, right? One of them was David Frost, who, who is now left government and sits in distinguished company with Fraser as a, as a, as a Telegraph columnist. Um, so I think he's unlikely to be made Chancellor from um, the House of Lords in, in those circumstances. But let, let's look at Jacob Rees-Mogg and this trust. I think there's a two very different arguments. Jacob Rees-Mogg's argument was, if the Prime Minister thinks this is so important and worth spending this money on, why don't we cut elsewhere in government spending? to pay for it rather than raising taxes. And Jacob Rees-Mogg was again delivering a kind of similar message at Cabinet this week, which is, you know, if you're worried about inflation, let's get a little, keep a lid on government spending. And so he, he would take the kind of classic fiscally conservative position of, you know, let's cut elsewhere in government and then you can cut taxes. But his trust argument was, well, look, let's see if growth will deliver enough money. And the implicit in that is if needs be, you can borrow the money. I think given how much debt interest payments are going up by, I think the argument of borrowing to fund tax cuts is harder to sustain intellectually in this environment. I think you there could have been an argument previously that interest rates were so low and the cost of borrowing was so low that it was almost rude not to borrow to fund, fund things. I, I think that argument is much harder to maintain intellectually now because, you know, I think, I think we... Um, we worked out yesterday that between now and 2027, uh, Max will correct me when I get the numbers wrong, but between now and 2027, the UK government's going to spend an extra £96 billion on servicing its debt. And I think in those circumstances, it, it strikes me as it's hard to see how it would be responsible to borrow more to fund tax cuts because you think that they're going to deliver extra revenue. I'm a bit more sympathetic to the Liz Truss argument. Um, I mean, this is basically a classic point in conservatism. It, let's go back to JFK's... I just, I think, I, 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 what, go on. No, I think, this is a, I think this is a big thing that gets missed in the, in the debate here. There is a difference between what the options available to the US with the global reserve currency and the options available to the UK. That, you know, people, you, you mentioned this kind of Thatcher-Reagan distinction. You know, it's a very different thing if you're Ronald Reagan and you've got the world's reserve currency and everyone is going to carry on buying US treasuries come what may to take risks. It, that, 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 is a, that is a massive difference between the US, the US and UK position, which I think sometimes because there is such a cross-pollination uh, in debate between the US and the UK, you know, but sometimes gets missed. Yeah, but, yeah so what you're saying, James, is that America can borrow more cheaply than Britain because of America's reserve currency. Uh, and be confident that it will always be able to do so. Right. Uh, now, when you look at the this argument, by the way, I think as I've had for, for decades um, in British politics, about whether you can have, going back to what to do JFK's speech to the New York Economics Club, he, he put it saying, look, there's two sorts of deficits you can have. The deficits of inertia, because the economy simply won't grow, and therefore it will not be able to provide the funds needed for the government. Or, but, or you can have tax cuts, and you can have deficits of transition, where if you cut taxes, you will get the economic growth. That will take a while to come. But while there's during that transition, it's going to cost you a bit more. Ultimately, it will be a price worth paying. Now, that is a, a general theory. Um, his point there is there is such a thing as a deficit finance tax cut, and it can work. Now, what you're saying, James, is yes, it's a lot more expensive to borrow money now. 
you're right. But it's way cheaper than it's ever been still at any point in, in recent history. If you look at government spending, the government's paying, I don't know, one, one and a half percent interest, uh, which, which is way, way, way less than it was paying at any point before the crash. Now, um, might that be sensitive to inflation? Well, it depends what kind of guilt you sell. It just so happens that the, Br- the British government traditionally has sold a lot of guilts uh, debt that are indexed to RPI. So therefore, we're a lot more vulnerable to rising inflation. But it's perfectly possible to sell on the market um, guilts that are not linked to inflation. That would give you a predictable cost and you can work out whether that cost is worth it. So just because inflation's come along, I don't think that rules out the argument that in certain circumstances there will be a clear economic case for letting the debt take the strain when you want to do a tax cut. And I think if we can't rule this out as a tool, then there are fewer tools with which to fight the recovery. Because if you're looking at an economy which is now groaning under the strain of a massive government with taxes at 77-year high, that's 36% of GDP, hardly ever in our modern history have taxes been so high. Are we really going to get that much growth out of it? And might there be more ways in which we can cut taxes rather than wait for two years until we do the spending cuts? Might there be some more nimble things that would get you a return on that investment pretty quickly? I think there would be. I wouldn't be too... I would caution against being too ideological about this. I would not say that tax cuts always pay for themselves, but nor would I say that they never pay for themselves. I would argue for a common sense third way. Fraser, which pitch um, do you think would work best in a Tory leadership contest? Oh, um, I think uh, the one I've just outlined, Liz Truss's pitch, there's no doubt about that. If he, if there were um, a Tory leadership contest, it's funny, I was talking about this, I was in Il Pratico restaurant last night, and um, I was having a chat with the owner uh, about this, and he wanted, this is what he wanted to know. If there was leadership contest, first of all, would it have to be contested? I think right now in government it would do. Yeah, definitely. Um, would Sunak be a candidate? Almost certainly. And who would be his opponent? Somebody who would argue against his vision of fiscal conservatism, as James has just outlined. I imagine that would be the dividing line between Rishi and whoever was to stand against him. It might be Liz Truss, it might be Rhys Mogg, it might be somebody else. I don't know. I think the Tories, as a party, we know that Liz Truss pulls better than Rishi Sunak. Um, she has probably lower name recognition, doesn't she? she Which does, makes yeah. it a bit harder to do the um, And of course, and, and by the way, these polls, I always don't pay much attention to them, really. But I think the, the members would prefer a slightly bolder um, talk about the tax cuts that we can do now in order to stoke the economy and get them to pay for themselves later on. This has always been a popular proposition amongst Conservatives. By the way, popular amongst the Prime Minister as well. This is exactly what he would do. Um, he would be all up for abolishing the national insurance increase, as would about two-thirds of the Cabinet. It's staying because Rishi Sunak believes very firmly, as James says, this is Rishi Sunak's irreducible core, to use that Blairite phrase. His whole political philosophy is based around the fact that you must recognise trade-offs, and if you want to cut taxes, you must first cut the spending. But this social care scheme is only going to become more expensive, as you say, you know, because it is trying to protect people's assets. It is going to cost more and more over time. So I don't abolish s- it? Yeah, but Boris Johnson doesn't want to abolish it. Right, but his successor almost certainly will. I'd like to think his successor will. I think it's an utter scam, this thing, and the Tories should get rid of it as the moment that Boris Johnson walks out the door. But the question is, if you are going to have it as a policy, should it be funded or not? Should it be funded? Mm. If you're going to have it as a policy, should it be funded or not? Um, I guess so. Yeah, so then how you, you know, I don't see how you pay for it other than by 
if if, if this, I mean, personally, I think an insurance scheme would be a much better option. But if the state is going to do this, it is going to have to be paid for. It is a permanent commitment that is going to only become more expensive. Right, but I don't. Think, I think that is one, an example of many, many things in which they could cut the cost of that. They could cost the cost of it a lot more. I mean, I was having a look at Rishi Sunak's tax plan. He published this little separate document alongside the budget. And that tax plan, about, you know, it says we're about to increase the amount of government spends and research and development from 15 billion to 20 billion. Why? Why are they spending that much money? Surely the individual private companies are best at doing R&D. Since when was the state any good at it? I mean, there's so much waste still there now that I think... Um, so, James, you answered your question. Should it be paid for? Yes, but I, I, I would pay for it. Um, but, but, by the way, I wouldn't do it in the first place. But if, heaven forbid, I had to continue with the bribery of the asset rich... I would finance it by finding cuts. There are so many cuts elsewhere if the government isn't looking at them. I think there is a danger of fatalistically thinking that the only future for Britain is basically a high-tax, high-spend future. Right now, there's a lack of imagination in the Tory front benches, and I would like to see a bit more of it. Final question to both of you. Fraser, do you think the chances of Rishi Sunak entering number 10 one day have gone down this week? Not really. I still find him a very impressive politician. He is confronting his party with hard choices. They might not like that, but those choices are there. To be honest, there's a lot more to come. For years, for two years, the Tories have been shaking the magic money tree in a way they said they wouldn't in 2019. And they are now beginning to work out the consequences. We've had the high debt party. Now the hangover has come in. I think Rishi Sunak is being incredibly honest right now. He is taking the political hit. And I think the reason people are talking about him coming the Icarus-style descending is because he was riding so high before in an unrealistic way. And now it's almost as if he, is, he, is, he, he himself is pricking his own bubble. He's thinking, right, I'm done with this dishy-rishy act. I'm afraid to say I've got nothing to offer now but blood, sweat, toil, tears and high taxes. People don't like that, but it is the consequence of all the spending that's been done so far. And I wish him luck in his fundamental mission of persuading the Conservative Party that they need to trim back on government spending. They need spending restraint if they want those tax cuts. James, do you think it's gone down his chances of being Prime Minister one day or not? I, I, you could say up. That would surprise everyone. No, no, no. I think you, I think you, we're open to a different view. I think you can give a... Uh, I, I, I think you, I could give a very pious answer. And I mean, but I think there is an element here that, you know, obviously, if you were being political about all this, if all you were interested in is, are you going to get to move next door or not? You would have seen a very different spring statement. You would have chosen to spend all of the headroom that the OBR said you had and choose to just meet your fiscal rule rather than giving yourself a margin of safety, I think was the phrase he used in the speech. And I think actually, you know, I think it would have been irresponsible to have gone right up to the line there. And that's why he wasn't prepared to do it. And I think in some ways his, you know, his view is here I stand, I can do no other kind of thing. I actually think he's more likely to resign than to get into number 10. What do you think he'll resign over? Boris Johnson's spending request? Or? Well, put it this way. He has laid down really important principles. As James was saying, all the, hit he's, all the political hit he's taken, he's taking and defending those principles. Now... I think he's had enough bending his principles. He has now drawn his red line. So if Boris Johnson says to him, right, I want you to spend shed loads and just put it on the national debt, uh, for whatever reason, you can easily see an emergency coming along. Even the Ukraine war has not prompted him to increase military spending. I think if you were to get one of those requests, he would resign on principle. 
And I think people who basically think that he's trying to play both sides for careerist reasons are fundamentally getting it wrong. I completely agree with James. A careerist, Rishi Sunak, would have have both spent and cut taxes with that fiscal headroom. He's doing this because he believes, you know, rightly or wrongly, but this is his duty. And I think he would sooner walk out of number 11 than go back to the high spending ways that led to the problem in the first place. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.